Hello, welcome to the Higher Education Researcher. This is a podcast by the Center for Higher Education Research and Evaluation at Lancaster University. My name is Olga Rotter, and my guest today is Professor Paul Trowler. Paul is a professor of higher education at Lancaster University and a director of the successful fully online doctoral program, Higher Education Research, Evaluation and Enhancement at the Department of Educational Research. Welcome, and thank you very much for coming, Paul. Thank you for asking me, Olga. Today we talk about Paul's new book, Accomplishing Change in Teaching and Learning Regimes, Higher Education and the Practice in Civility. The book offers an important way of seeing the professional world of higher education through conceptually informed teaching and learning regimes framework. Paul, the concept of TLR has been applied by researchers, change agents, and many others in higher education throughout the world. Can you give us a sense of what are the teaching and learning regimes and what is their importance? Certainly. Um, The idea started from an article that Ali Cooper and I did in 2001. And what uh, we wanted to do there was to think beyond the individual. A lot of academic development work had been concentrating on preparing individuals to teach, developing individual skills and so on. And from the kind of practice perspective that I'd developed, I could see that there were some issues with that. So I wanted, first of all, to go beyond the individual and the ontological individualism, which sees individual people as the generative forces of society and the generative forces of change. I mean, there's some truth in that, but it's not the whole truth by any means. So the idea of teaching and learning regimes wants to understand the complexities of microcultures within universities with work groups that are concerned with teaching and learning that uh, work on a common project, for example, a curriculum project or a course or whatever, over an extended period of time. And that's done by the idea of moments. And there are 11 moments with things like subjectivities and interaction, materiality and interaction, conventions of appropriateness, tacit assumptions, and so on. So these moments break down the nature of teaching and learning regimes and give a series of tools through which we can pin down that very difficult concept of microculture, if you like. So regular practices, uh, recurrent behaviors underpinned by values and attitudes and so on, have these moments flowing through them. Um, So that gives you that the teaching and learning regime concept gives you a way of understanding local contexts, how they operate, what things are influencing influencing them, the conventions of appropriateness that they have, tacit assumptions, theories of teaching and learning, and so on. And those have implications for uh, the enhancement of practices for change processes and so on. So the Trowler and Cooper paper the 2001 paper, really asked the question, will it be effective to train uh, teachers in academia? Will it actually change departmental practices, departmental cultures? And we worried that when those individuals go back, they don't go back to a vacuum, they go back to a teaching and learning regime. And it's a regime that has power. That's why it's called a regime. It's one of the reasons. they're, they're tough to change. Um, so uh, it was really about questioning how we bring about change in universities, change for the better. So that that was the 
the underpinning uh, concept and motivation um, and, and the importance, the significance of teaching and learning regimes to go beyond the individual and to think a bit more in a bit more nuanced uh, way um, how enhancement happens and what the nature of social reality in such contexts is. And of course, you can bring to that all of the uh, sets of tools that social practice theory in general uh, has to offer. And I'll probably talk a bit more about that later in the podcast. Paul, what is the purpose of developing practice in civility? And also, what are the conditions to its development? Mm, thanks. That's that's quite a recent... We did a project, uh, Vicky Traller and I and Murray Saunders did a project for the uh, Scottish Quality Assurance Agency, and we were writing up about that, and this notion kind of hit me. Uh, this was two or three years ago, uh, that actually it's not very useful to try to offer tips and tricks for change agents because contexts are so important. And in previous work, we did, we, we tackled that issue in, in different ways, uh, thinking about a framework for action and so on. But actually the notion of a practice sensibility changes the focus of thinking about how can we be helpful and says, actually it's the change agents perspective that is important here, how they see the world and how informed their way of seeing is. And if you think about it, it's pretty obvious. I mean, in social science, the C. Wright Mills, the famous early sociologist, uh, American sociologist, uh, talked about the sociological imagination, uh, a particular way of see seeing the world sociologically. And there have been many kind of equivalent ideas since. But those have always been for researchers. Um, and uh, I think it's important that not just researchers have a particular way of seeing the world, but practitioners, teachers, professionals in general. Um, of course, I'm concerned with higher education. So, um, And this is true, of course, across the professions. Medicine, for example. Doctors are trained to see uh, cases in particular ways. Uh, art education is partly about skills, but it's also about learning a way of seeing a, a sensibility, an art sensibility. So it's it's kind of strange that we haven't come to this view um, in the past in terms of thinking about uh, bringing about change um, in, in this case in teaching and learning practices. So a practice sensibility is a heightened awareness of practices uh, it looks at practices rather than at individuals and what they're doing. It looks at moments, it sees the moments in operation, and it sees the forces that condition moments, that shape them, restrict them, that give, that give opportunities and so on. Um, so um, it gives the conditions for development. And how do you bring it about? Well, I think just like in medicine, you look at a series of cases, case studies in our in our uh, in our field look at how change processes have occurred elsewhere and look at how they've been successful or not successful uh, that's one thing and it's something i do in the book a lot is to use different examples from around the world of change processes partly to encourage the development of the practice sensibility but of course again like medicine it needs knowledge and concepts and so on and that way of seeing needs to be fed intellectually if you like um, and it also involves an active looking um, for uh, the practices in operation 
including in everyday circumstances. For example, my dog is an expert in social practices. It knows exactly what's going to uh, happen next because it's very well aware of the recurrent behaviors, tones of voice, phrases used, and so on. Um, so you can actually see, use the practice sensibility in small things in everyday life. So tips and tricks for change agents in textbooks and so on are no good because the writer of the textbook is divorced from the detail of the context from the teaching and learning regime uh, and its particularities. Uh, but helping to develop a practice sensibility is one way of being helpful to the change sets of change processes. One of the moments you are referring to in your book is backstories that individuals bring to their practice. I wanted to ask what is the backstory of your book? <laughs> Thanks, Olga. That's quite an interesting question. In fact, I start with that in a sort of forward to the to the book to give the reader a feel for where I've been coming from. I mean, this is I'm describing this book as my capstone, lifetime capstone work. My, <laughs> the the sort of finish. Although I am working on something else, which I'll probably talk about in in a, in a second. So. It's been a life for me. It's been a lifelong attempt to try to understand the social world. And my undergraduate degree, for example, I was really interested in Marx, Marx, Karl Marx's theory of historical materialism, the base and the superstructure. And you can see some of this in these kinds of influences in in uh, my work, um, the material base, the ideological superstructure and so on. But also Berger and Luckman, for example, The Social Construction of Reality, a now famous book that had only just come out at the time. I'm talking about the 70s, early 70s, uh, very much a social constructionist perspective, really very divorced from Marxist one. Uh, and then when I did my master's degree at Lancaster, as it happened in the politics department, uh, my dissertation was about uh, Marcuse and the Frankfurt School and making comparisons with, with classical Marxism on the question of the nature of social reality mm -hmm. and so on. So that started, you know, from the age of 18 onwards. Uh, and then much later on, my PhD was about the nature of change processes and trying to understand the significance of individual attitudes and perspectives and so on, and, but also within the context of uh, social, social structures, social forces, and particularly ideologies at work within within the higher education context. So that PhD was published as uh, Academics Responding to Change mm -hmm. by uh, Open University Press in 1998. And then after that, of course, I was working with Tony Beecher on uh, academic tribes and territories and so on. And I, I was asked to do that by the publishers because I kind of respected Tony's work and found it very valuable, but had a number of problems with it. And I, I'd written for them a five-page, really, critique, I suppose, the um, ideas behind the book and how they could be developed. And at the time, the publishers wanted that second edition that, in fact, came out co-authored by me in 2001, where some of my ideas were uh, able to mitigate some of the problems that I saw in the original Beecher work, Academic Tribes and Territories, which was basically about epistemological essentialism. Again, it was a, a concern with the nature of, the, of social reality. And I just found 
as well as some other issues with the book, I just found that epistemological essentialism a bit too simple. The idea that it's the knowledge structures of disciplines that determine, not even condition, but determine the cultures of the academic tribes, the differences between sociologists and physicists, for example, in all kinds of different ways. I didn't see, I didn't see that described because I knew, for example, that sociology in Italy, in a Catholic university in Italy, was very different from sociology in America, which it was different again from sociology here in the UK, and so on. So, you know, the epistemological essentialism business was part of the story, but not uh, the whole story. And I, it really, doing the PhD, which was about change processes around uh, the credit framework, and it was a, um, an ethnographic study of a single institution going through a, a fairly tumultuous period of change, made me realize that to understand change processes, you've really got to get to grips with stasis. How do, You have to understand how the social work world maintains itself and why it is as it is before you can start to say, okay, how do we make it better? Uh, and that's been a kind of underpinning um, a principle of my work about change, enhancement, policy processes, and so on. Don't try and fix it before you understand how it works. Thank you very much, Paul. The most significant professional dimension of your book is changing teaching and learning practices in higher education. Could you please illustrate or tell us one of the vignettes from your book, how change processes can be actually addressed using the TLR theory? Mm, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of vignettes in the book and I won't repeat those. Perhaps if I just set out some principles for change processes. And as I say, I need, as I've just said, you need to start from where you are. You need to understand stasis in the context of interest. So a lot of the book, there's a whole chapter about data collection and so on, and it's orientated around a light version of ethnography. Um, and it's also orientated to the insider somebody who knows the context well, a head of department, a change agent, a member of staff, whoever it is, um, before starting change, it's necessary either through some kind of uh, research, data collection and so on, be it light ethnography or something else, or through an insider who has managed to get beyond the normalization that often happens. It, this is one of the problems with insider research. It's if you're too inside, uh, you can't really see uh, how things work very easily because they've just become normal for you. They've just be, become accepted. So understanding the moments in process, understanding the nature of the of the TLR is really important. And one of the principles I mentioned about the principles of social practice theory earlier on, one of the principles of social practice theory says that practices are historically emergent. They don't come from nowhere. They always have a history. They always have a backstory. Um, and they're a development on what went before. Uh, so understanding what went before is really important and understanding the stories, the saga about that too, that people tell each other is also important. But understanding the structures, including, yes, disciplinary differences, ways of thinking and practicing, 
uh, and so on, whatever framework you want to use, including those, is very, very significant starting point. And then the next issue to address is what needs enhancement, what needs changing, what doesn't need changing. And people, uh, certainly in the UK, academics in the UK, are very tired of change. There's a kind of a weariness uh, set in. And also a projectitis where funding is available and then it only lasts for a short time and then it's withdrawn and so on. And um, kind of weariness with that, where things are had money thrown at them, but there's very little in the way of a legacy very often. So thinking about what's the problem. And um, that's, that's a really important question because many new researchers often take the, prob- the problem for granted. Oh, yes, we need to you know, do this, we need to do that. But the trouble is the problem is often uh, seen from very different perspectives or completely different problems are seen. And one of the one of the papers, one of the threads in the cloth of this book, as I describe it on the uh, on my Weebly site, where I set out all the precursor work that I'd done that led to this book. One of the issues here is that these so-called problems are, in fact, wicked issues very often. Wicked issues meaning that there isn't agreement on what the issue is even, let alone how to fix it. There's certainly no algorithm for fixing the problem. There are different takes on it and so on. So thinking about what a better situation would look like is really important. So, for example, for university administrators concerned with research and supervision, a better situation would often look like one where doctoral researchers all finished their research within four years and uh, were done and dusted, or at least a very good proportion. But for supervisors or for the researchers themselves, a better a better situation in doctoral research might be something completely different, and they might see some problems with that perspective, and so on. So, it's you know even deciding what the problem is is problematic, and I give uh, an example of where I did con- some consultancy in South Africa, where I was asked to address a particular problem, difficult people actually, and um, I, I rather disappointed my funders by saying, well. You know, we need to unpack that problem a little and uh, think about it more carefully before we decide what what to do. That's also, I suppose, part of understanding the context better. Um, And then having thought about the enhancement areas to be addressed, then the question comes, how does that change, that proposed change, that initiative, uh, that intervention, whatever it is, how does that relate to the moments in place and how does it relate to the backstory where the teaching and learning regime has come from where are going to be the points of conflict where are the opportunities and scaffolding that can move forward in what ways does the intervention need to be domesticated uh, so that it fits better the context in place and so on so uh, there are two sets of three things to think about when applying this kind of theory, to to put it very simply. The first set of three things is, what's the initiative? What's the context? What's the interaction between the two things? How will this initiative affect the power relations, for example, that are in place? Sometimes that's one of the huge sticking points. If 
you know, for example, academics as the sage on the stage, which puts them in a particular power situation, uh, are encouraged to become the guide at the side, you know, a more facilitative approach. Well, you know, pedagogically, that's a great idea, but it does touch issues of power. It touches issues of subjectivities. It touches, in other words, many of the moments of a teaching and learning regime. And so with a practice sensibility, you can look at the situation, look at the initiative and have a feel for where the problems are going to be, where the opportunity is going to be, where not to go, where to go. And the second set of categories to think about, which are very much related to the first set, are salience, congruence and profitability. In other words, is this initiative salient to, is it relevant to, is it important to the uh, teaching and learning in place? Where are the areas of salience? Um, and of course, again, that's related to the practice sensibility. So salience, congruence, how far does it fit? How far can it be made to fit? And again, this is one of the things about social practices that uh, revolutionary change, I'll come to this uh, later on, revolutionary change usually results in a snapping back to uh, to old practices. Practices are very resilient. And so if you want change that has some permanence and sticks um, rather than just compliance, then you need to look for areas of congruence. And uh, very often it's a question of not adoption of a change, of a proposed change, but adaptation, uh, domestication, so that it fits current practices in a process that Weber, another classic sociologist, uh, called elective affinity, the selective um, taking of some things, forgetting of other things, changing of, uh, of, of, of some things he was talking about. Uh, of course, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, but the same thing applies uh, here. And the third uh, of this set of categories is profitability. What's, what's in it for people? Do they see any profit? And I'm not talking about money here, of course, in academia, of course not. I'm talking about things that um, academics and other professionals value. And again, that's dependent on context, but often time, saving time is, um, is important in this. So you've got a set of principles, you've got a set of ideas, both from social practice theory in general, and from my work in particular about teaching learning regimes, the moments and the forces that shape them, that constrain them, and uh, create uh, sets of dispositions, structured dispositions uh, in place. Paul, you say that the book develops the TLR idea from a descriptive framework to a full-blown theory. What do you mean by this? And what problems do you see with the theory, if any? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, uh, so the 2001 paper that I mentioned um, set out the idea of the moments and teaching and learning regimes and the development of these practices as a work group works together over an extended period of time on a common project. But what you have really in that is a set of categories. 
the basically the moments, eleven. Well, originally eight moments. Well, originally nine moments, uh, but then I cut it down to eight, uh, and then grew it again to eleven in the book. Uh, so, they're, they're, as uh, all practices are, the, the idea of the moments is processual in nature. Um, so those were valuable, but they were kind of static. They were descriptive. They were a framework. You could describe reality in a nuanced way very well with them. They were good at what I wanted them to do, which was to pin to the wall that jelly concept of culture and make it and operationalize it. Um, but the, to have a full-blown theory, at least in the hypothetical deductive model of theory, the Popperian kind of model, uh, you need to have a set of concepts, which of course there are here, but they need to be linked together in a way which talks about causality and enables you to explain the particular part of reality that you're interested in and to be predictive, or at least in the social science, to be able to make fuzzy uh, predictions. That's the, that's the hypothetical deductive model and, of course, needs to be testable as well. Um, so the, the model, and I think it was a model, uh, needed greater ontological depth, a model rather than a theory. Uh, it needed to be able to answer questions like what conditions practices, what shapes them, what are the connections, explanatory connections between these uh, concepts? Um, and, uh, and this key question, of course, that all of social science always comes back to, what's the relationship between structure and agency? And in a lot of the social practice theory to date, and particularly communities of practice theory, um, individuals, the agency side of that was uh, very muted, occluded. Um, and even in other social practice theories, uh, individuals are seen as carriers. That's a word that comes up very often, carriers of practice. Um, and although I said earlier on that it's important to move beyond ontological individualism, uh, it's also important not to lose sight of uh, agency and uh, subjectivities and the significance of those and the ability of people in particular contexts to create performances, uh, repertoires that are conditioned by structures, but don't simply reproduce them. Uh, so every performance is different. Um, Elizabeth Show, for example, talks about practice as entity, in other words, kind of structure structures, and practice as performance, in other words, individual instantiations of those, each of which is 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 different. So uh, the book does that by developing the idea of proto-practice reservoirs, kind of pre-practice ideational reservoirs that people draw on. And I saw this in my PhD uh, work, ideologies at work and so on. So this is drawing a lot on the on that ethnographic, uh, five-year ethnographic study. So the proto-practice reservoirs exist in the ideational plane. They uh, are things like symbolic structures, uh, ways of thinking about and categorizing the world, educational ideologies, progressivism, traditionalism, social reconstructionism, and enterprise, as I call them, those four ideologies. But you find those with different names 
in lots of the literature describing the outcomes of studies. So those are drawn on uh, those reservoirs, the practice entities, as, as um, Shove calls them, but I, I, I prefer this notion from Bernstein of reservoirs. Um, and then the contextual conditions are also structure um, the uh, the moments and the, and the practices, uh, for example, disciplinary differences, uh, ways of thinking and practicing, if you like, uh, materiality, uh, the architectural layouts, the structure of the room, the hardware and software in place, and so on, and the practice architectures, uh, to use Chemis's uh, useful concept of the institutions themselves, the power relations, the discourses in place, uh, and uh, the, the policies and practices within the institution as a whole that shape local instantiations of teaching and learning regimes and the moments that that support them. So, and then as well as those new elements, um, developing the theory and showing how the framework is constructed and shaped in particular contexts, there is a greater application, I think, in the book um, than, than some of my previous work anyway, of the tenets of social practice theories, such as the um, description of practices as emergent, historically emergent, uh, processual, and so on. So there's much more attention to unpicking, because I've got more space to do it, I think, the nature of reality, that issue that I said had driven me um, right from my undergraduate days. But you asked about the problems. And I, this is something I'm tackling at the moment. And one of the problems with the social practice approach is I think it's quite conservative. Um, it's saying, you know, softly, softly uh, in change process. It's not revolutionary change. And yet, you know, today particularly we're seeing from South Africa and now around the world that roads must fall, fees must fall, the anti-colonial um, movement and so on, quite revolutionary uh, movements with uh, in South Africa anyway, universities being set aflame and, and so on. Uh, so it doesn't, uh, apart from saying, well, that won't last, that won't change much in the long term because practices snap back, it doesn't really have provision for understanding and um, thinking differently um, from the context that we have. Uh, so um, it is quite conservative or pessimistic, if you want to say that. Whereas Sue, people like Sue Clegg, Stephen Ball and so on say that social science, um, including in higher education, the study of higher education, should think otherwise, should imagine we should move into the imaginarium. We should think beyond today and think of futures. And, you know, again, social futures is a is a big uh, is a big movement uh, just now. Um, so, social practice theory has some problems coping uh, with that. And I've been working recently on a paper about taking this approach, uh, the, the approach in the book, to doctoral supervision. Um, 
really because you'd think, well, you know, doctoral supervision is, in fact, when a colleague said this in a meeting, it's it's only about two people, you know, the supervisor and the supervisee. Uh, Well, not really, not from a social practice perspective and not from a post-colonial perspective either. And um, Manothanga, Catherine Manothanga, has has done some very, and others have done some very interesting work injecting a radical perspective on uh, supervision from a post-colonial uh, viewpoint, thinking about supervision that occurs in universities in the global north with supervisees from the global south with their particular forms of knowledge, their particular sets of expectations, uh, their particular um theories of teaching and learning and so on so uh you can you can apply the moments but in a in a radical way um and i'm playing in that paper with the idea not only of zooming in and out as uh, nicolini talks about in his book book but panning up panning up and panning down and panning up in particular looks at structured disadvantage uh and this post-colonial perspective, uh, for example, and there's a very nice, I happen to come across this very nice um, twin uh, tackling of the same issue by Michael Apple and uh, Ted Shadsky. And they're looking at essentially McDonald's. They don't they don't name McDonald's. But Shadsky is, is looking at McDonald's, a particular McDonald's outlet, from a practice perspective and zooming out to show how different practices um, lead to getting a burger from a McDonald's. Uh, and he his is an ontologically flat perspective. So he just zooms uh, zooms out. He sees a greater practice landscape on the horizontal plane, and he doesn't think there's anything more than that. Whereas Michael Apple is also thinking about McDonald's, but McDonald's as a as a global system, and he shows how an Asian country, which he doesn't name, is intensely affected by um, the search by the McDonald's Corporation for cheap potatoes, and how that affects. Uh, land ownership, the dispossession of peasants in this Asian country of their land for which they have no deeds and so on, and the imposition of a monoculture of potatoes simply because Americans and others want cheap chips. So uh, (laughs) that uh, very nice contrast shows how I think you can, if you try hard and think a bit differently about social practices, uh, inject that radical perspective. Thank you, Paul. It was a great pleasure and a big honor to have you as a guest. So thank you very much again for coming. Thank you so much. It's uh, been a great pleasure, Olga. It was Professor Paul Trowler and the higher education researcher. Have a good day. <laughs>